we're going to be back in Mark tonight. Actually, I want to cover a few things that I didn't cover the last time in dealing with the parables here. So if you turn to Mark chapter 4, so we're going to read verses 10 to 13, and then we're going to jump over and read verses 21 to 34. So 10 to 13, it says, And when he was alone, they that were about him with the twelve asked of him the parable. And he said unto them, Unto you it is given to know the mystery of the kingdom of God, but unto them that are without, all these things are done in parables, that seeing they may see and not perceive, and hearing they may hear and not understand, lest at any time they should be converted and their sins should be forgiven them. And he said unto them, Know ye not this parable? He said, How then will you know all parables? And we'll go on, and he goes on to give the explanation of the parable of the sower, and we'll move on to verse 21. At the end of the parable to the sower in verse 21, he says, And he said unto them, As a candle brought to be put under a bushel or under a bed, and not to be set on a candlestick. For there is nothing hid which shall not be manifested, neither was anything kept secret, but that it should come abroad. If any man have ears to hear, let him hear. And he said unto them, Take heed what you hear. With what measure you meet, it shall be measured to you, and unto you that hear shall be more given. For he that has, to him shall be given. And he that has not, from him shall be taken even that which he has. And he said, So the kingdom of God is as if a man should cast seed into the ground and should sleep and rise night and day, and the seed should spring and grow up, and he knoweth not how. For the earth bringeth forth fruit of herself, first the blade, then the ear, and after that the full corn in the ear. But when the fruit is brought forth, immediately he putteth in the sickle, because the harvest is come. And he said, Whereunto shall we liken the kingdom of God? Or with what comparison shall we compare it? It is like a grain of mustard seed, which, when it is sown in the earth, is less than all the seeds that be in the earth. But when it is sown, it groweth up, and becometh greater than all herbs." And shooteth out great branches, so that the fowls of the air may lodge under the shadow of it. And with many such parables spake he the word unto them, as they were able to hear it. But without a parable spake he not unto them. And when they were alone, he expounded all things to his disciples. So I want to say this uh, before we get into these actual verses here. So the parables of Jesus are about the kingdom of God. He's explaining what the kingdom of God is like. And so when you say the expression, the kingdom of God, it's obvious that God rules this kingdom as the king. I mean, it's obvious, isn't it? A king rules a kingdom, except for today. So the king and queen of England are, they're not ruling anything. They are literal figureheads. The point I want to make is we got to put ourselves to really understand these parables and his speaking about the kingdom and why he's giving these parables here in the way he is. We've got to put ourselves kind of in their shoes and the people that lived back in that day. So their kings back then were not figureheads. So the one who was king at the time Jesus came, Herod the Great, he was not a king in name only because he was a dangerous political and military ruler. Because Herod back then, and the people knew it, he was ruthless on the one hand, and I would use the term regal on the other. He was ruthless in that anybody that he thought was an enemy, he eliminated like right away. Even members of his own family he killed if he thought they were going to try to take over the throne. He was that paranoid in a way. 
But he was ruthless in that manner. He took care of his enemies. But also Herod is regal in the sense that he built all kinds of magnificent structures, one of which is even still around today, Masada, still standing, his royal palace. Honestly, I'm not sure if that's still standing or not, but it was a great structure at the time. He reconstructed the temple in Jerusalem. He rebuilt the whole city of Samaria in honor of one of the Roman rulers, and he put a port that was a great port put cement actually in water. Part of that is even still existing. And he did other things. And so he was regal in a sense. And his kingdom, it stretched from Beersheba clear to the south near the Dead Sea, all the way past the Sea of Galilee up near Syria. So he was a king that ruled with power and authority and got results. And so what we need to see with that is Jesus comes on the scene when this is the people's understanding of a king and kingdom. It wasn't a name only. And he boldly proclaims, we keep going back to it in Mark 1.15. He said, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. And so he's in doing that. He's announcing something that is going to be of tremendous impact on the lives of all these Jewish people that are hearing this. And they hear that coming from him. It's causing their ears to perk up. They're carefully listening to what he says and especially... Who was before him? John the Baptist. And what did John the Baptist announce? All the people were coming out to him to be baptized. All of them recognized John to be a prophet. And he said, this one coming after me, he's coming after me, he's mightier than I. So they're expecting this king when they hear this. And they knew that all the Old Testament prophets had foretold of a day when Israel would be ruled by God as their king. Zechariah 14.9 says, The Lord shall be king over all the earth, and in that day shall there be one Lord and his name one. So they knew their king, the God of Israel, would rule over all the nations one day. And that's what they were looking for. So you think about it in light of they've been hundreds of years under the thumb of these other empires. So in light of the Assyrian, Babylonian, Persian, Greek, and now Roman domination in Jesus' day, what they're hoping for is because of these prophets and all the prophecies they'd heard, they're looking for a divine revolution. God's kingdom to come in and overthrow, at that time it would have been Rome, these kingdoms that are coming in and oppressing them and taking advantage of them. So when he's announcing in Mark 1.15 that the revolution has arrived, he's saying the time is fulfilled. No more waiting because now I'm here to tell you the kingdom of God is at hand. That would have been music to their ears. They're not only perking up their ears, they're hearing that and they're like, this is great. And, you know, they wanted to make Jesus king in John 6.15, didn't they? They're looking for that king. So kingdom to them, when they're hearing that, is like when we hear the word revolution. It suggested something military and political. That's what they're looking for. Now, I was watching a town hall meeting with the guy that's running with Donald Trump for vice president. And this lady is like, you know, if he doesn't get in there, there's going to be a revolution. And he's like, no, 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 we don't want to talk a revolution. There'll be a revolution at the voting booth is what he said. But what they mean by that is it's, you know, this idea in revolution is what? We're going to take over with arms and force and might. And that's what these people are hearing when Jesus comes on the scene with kingdom. It was that way for them. And listen, people take the words of Jesus even today and they want to make it into that, don't they? I mean, some of you may be too young, but we had a movement in this country called the Moral Majority. 
Christian movement. We're going to Christianize the United States. And did it work? Look around you. It doesn't even exist anymore. Some of the people that ran the moral majority aren't even blowing that trumpet. They've given up on that. They say the obvious. Hearts have to be changed. It's not going to be a matter of legislating morality. Because think about it. In this country, we have had laws against homosexuality, divorce, drug use. People laugh at those. Could you imagine if we tried to pass laws against homosexuality now? We're going to pass God's laws. We're going to make this a quote-unquote Christian nation. Pass laws on abortion, homosexuality. I mean, now they're legalizing marijuana, same-sex marriage. I mean, they would laugh at that. It is obviously not going to work, but that has been the mentality of Christians from the beginning and God's people all along. But so I'm going to ask the obvious question. Was Jesus' kingdom a kingdom established by political and military power? And the obvious answer to that is no. So it wasn't a kingdom brought about by force, neither by military force or even supernatural force. It wasn't brought about that way. How was it brought about? Through the word. That's what this chapter is all about. The seed. So there's supernatural involved, right? The miracles of the Lord Jesus Christ. But that wasn't used to overthrow, to bring his kingdom in. It wasn't used, was it, to overthrow governments? Because when it could have been, when they're after him to take him, to crucify him, what did he say? I'm not using my power for that. That's not what it's all about. I could call down 10,000 angels right now if I wanted to, but I'm not going to. That wasn't how it was going to happen. So he established his kingdom, we're seeing here, by sowing seed. Speaking the word by preaching. Just the opposite of earthly power. Because you think about it, somebody just going out and throwing that seed in the air, how's that happening? I mean, that's a gentle way of doing things. It seems to be weak and vulnerable. When you had seed in the ground, it doesn't take much to destroy it, does it? I mean, I was told to stay off your lawn after my lawn got seeded. Stay off of that thing for a while. Don't cut your grass or do anything. But that is how Jesus brought about his kingdom. That's how his kingdom was established, sowing his word in the hearts of people. And that word creates new life, doesn't it? When it comes into that honest and good heart, it creates new life, the people that embrace it. So that's how it's established, partly established, the kingdom of God. People hear the word of God and obey it, and what happens when they do that? They bear fruit, and the fruit comes up, and it's critical what I'm saying is, it's critical that we understand that is how God's kingdom is established. That's what this parable is trying to tell us. We've got to have that for the foundation of understanding everything else. Because look what he says in verse 13 in chapter 4. And he said unto them, if you don't know this parable, if you don't understand this parable, he said, then how will you know or understand all parables? This parable that God's kingdom begins with the word of God in good hearts. That is how we enter his kingdom. That's how his kingdom will be established. And that's how he keeps it going. Through the word. A simple word. That's how he spoke the world into existence. That's how he's speaking his kingdom into existence. It's the way it works. So let me ask the question, why did Jesus speak in parables? So was he trying to hide truth? Was he giving out like unsolvable riddles? That people look at those and like, man, I don't, I don't know how to understand that thing. Well, let me say, it's not to his disciples he wasn't. He wasn't trying to keep his disciples from learning the truth. So when he gave 
and explained his parables to his disciples, it actually gave them greater understanding of spiritual truths. And he freely explained his parables to his disciples, freely did. But to those that opposed his teaching we read, it came to them in parables, mysteries. So look again at verses 10 to 12. It says, when he was alone, they that were about him with the 12 asked him of the parable. And he said unto them, unto you it is given to know the mystery of the kingdom of God, but unto them that are without, all these things are done in parables, that seeing they may see and not perceive, hearing they may hear and not understand, lest at any time they should be converted and their sins should be forgiven them. So listen, the parables have a twofold nature. A twofold nature. One is to bless the insiders, and the second is to hide the truth from the outsiders. I want to talk about those two groups, and that's what we have here in verses 10 through 12. So who were the insiders? Look what it says there in verse 10. And when he was alone, here are the two groups. They that were about him is the first group, and the second group with the twelve. The twelve is the second group of the insiders. And what we need to see here, who were these people? They weren't the multitudes, were they? He spoke to the multitudes when he was in the ship. They're all around the seashore, right? But what happens? He gets by himself. It says he was alone. Didn't it say that? He had left the crowd. Here's the significant thing. These people that wanted to understand these parables, what did they have to do? They had to seek him out, didn't they? They were hungry to understand more. That's the difference. And look at verse 10. It says, when he was alone, they that were about him with the twelve, what did they do? It says they asked him about the parables. That's the difference between the insiders and those that are the multitudes or the outsiders. The insiders, they seek him and ask him. So they want to understand truth. And here's the question. Did he withhold it from them? What did he say? Jesus said what to us? When he taught on prayer, he said, ask and you shall receive, which is what they did. He said, seek and you will find. And that's the truth about any truth he has. It doesn't just come automatically. We have to ask and we have to seek. Well, what about the others? What about the ones that didn't come? What does the Bible say about them, the ones that didn't seek? Psalm 10, 4 says this, the wicked through the pride of his countenance, will not seek after God. They're probably like, man, I'm not going to ask him about farming. I know all about farming. I don't know what his point was. I don't really care. The wicked, through the pride of his countenance, isn't going to recognize that, man, this guy's got some words. I'd really like to know what he meant by that. And Psalm 53, 2 says this, God looked down from heaven upon the children of men, and he wanted to see if there were any that did understand, that did seek God. God, and it says that every one of them is gone back. And what does that tell us? The word tells us it is not naturally in any man or woman to want to know the God of the Bible. Not in any of us. And if you're here tonight with no interest, and you know you have no interest in the Word of God, you never read it on your own, it just collects dust, that should cause you alarm. It really should. And you should just pray for God to give you a hunger to want to know his word. 
But for those of us to do hunger and thirst to know more, what should that be? That should be a cause to praise God that he's put that desire in our heart. It really is. Because what does he promise? Jesus promises that to those that hunger and thirst after righteousness, what will he do to them? They will be filled. And that's what we're seeing here. So look what it says to those that are gathered around him in his divine explanation. Look here. Verse 11. He said unto them, unto you, these ones that sought him, that wanted more understanding, that asked him. He says, unto you, it is given to know the mystery of the kingdom of God. Unto you, he says, it is given. And what does that tell us? That knowledge of the word has to be given to us, doesn't it? It's a gift from God. So it's never achieved through our intellects, through our effort, just purely that way. It's never achieved that way. So what I'm trying to point out here is the privilege, these parables. The insiders aren't the ones with the high IQs. It's privileged information is what I'm trying to say. It's not a riddle that can't be understood. It's privileged, though, to be shown, right? It's not that it's incomprehensible that no one can understand it, but it's hidden, and only given to those that seek and ask and the ones that he chooses to give it to. Let me see if this helps illustrate what I'm trying to say. So the interpretation of Nebuchadnezzar's dream, it was secret and it was hidden from his wise men, right? They all said, we have no idea. They all think they're going to get their heads chopped off. And someone remembered something about old Daniel over here. God seems to reveal things to him and they bring him in, right? was revealed to Daniel by God. But once the interpretation was revealed, was it like nobody could understand it? Everybody could understand it, couldn't they? Even the king, he's like, praise you, Daniel, bring you up on high here. So it's not that it's some riddle you can't understand, it's just something that's hidden that has to be revealed. That's the point. So the insiders, what's that saying is, if it was some kind of riddle, some kind of code that had to be unlocked or whatever, then the insiders would just be those with high IQs and seminary degrees. <laughs> you don't have to go to a seminary to learn Greek, Hebrew, take classes. That may or may not make you more spiritual. It may make you less spiritual. You might start relying on that more, right? So someone with a seminary degree or a high IQ, that doesn't disqualify you, but that's not how you get the information. The insiders are the ones that are given by God to know the mystery of the kingdom. It's the ones that he has chosen. It's the elect. The ones that hear the voice of the shepherd and follow him to learn more. That's what the Bible teaches, doesn't it? Matthew 11 says this, Jesus says, I thank thee, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hid these things from the wise and prudent and has revealed them unto babes. Even so, Father, for so it seemed good in thy sight. He said, all things are delivered to me of my Father, and no man knows the Son but the Father. Neither knows any man the Father save the Son, and he to whomsoever the Son will reveal him. Now that gets some people upset when they hear that because they get all concerned about I might be one of those that's locked out. You don't have to worry about that. You really don't. So the only way you're going to be denied is if you're somebody that chooses not to come to him. That's always the way it is. 
John 6, 37, he says, all that the Father gives me shall come to me. And here's what you need to realize, whether it's revelation from the Word, salvation, whatever it is you need, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, whatever. It says, Jesus went on to say, in him that comes to me, he says, I will in no wise cast out. So if you've got a heart and you're willing to come and you want to learn, you just take that right there. That's his promise. He's the one you're coming to. He's the one you're afraid is going to lock you out. And he is the one that said, you come to me, I won't keep you out of the house. You could have been right in there with the 12 and the other insiders. If you wanted to come, won't turn anybody away. Those kind of verses shouldn't get us all upset. And hopefully they'll wake somebody up that's just kind of like, man, I really haven't cared, but it's kind of starting to bother me. Well, good, that's probably the Spirit of God dealing with you. Let Him deal with you and bring you in. <laughs> so those are the insiders, the ones that seek and ask. They want to know more. They're following the shepherd. So who are the outsiders? Look there in verse 11. He says, unto you it is given to know the mystery of the kingdom of God. And I think it's interesting that he even singles them out this way. He says, but unto them that are without you say, the ones that aren't here around me right now, they got problems, is what he goes on to say. Who are these people? Look what he says. He says, I'm speaking to them in parables. Verse 12, he says that seeing they may see and not perceive, and hearing they may hear and not understand, lest at any time they should be converted and their sins should be forgiven them. Well, that verse 12 is a quote from Isaiah 6. And it's a message of judgment. And you say, well, man, that just doesn't sound fair or right. Oh, I thought you've been preaching God's a God of mercy. Well, I have been preaching that, and he is. <laughs> and it says here, that he speaks to them in parables so that they can't see or hear. And not only that, it says he doesn't want them to be converted or forgiven. That sounds like just the opposite of what you just said. You know, and that doesn't sound like the God of love I've been hearing about or know about or think I worship. Here's what you need to understand. That God doesn't do that to people that want to listen. That's not what he's doing. People that want to listen and hear, that's not what he's doing. People that want to listen and hear and do what's right, he's not keeping them from doing that. This judgment is against those that have already turned their back on God and have rejected his truth. Who are the ones that are hearing these parables that aren't gathered around him? What name don't you see that we saw back in chapter 3? I don't hear any Pharisees there. Now, some of them we know got converted. So they might have been outside for a while. That doesn't mean just because you're outside for a time, you can't be brought inside. But hey, he warned them. He said, you all are blaspheming the Holy Spirit by the things you're saying against me. And they're not one of the insiders. They are the outsiders. But people that have rejected God's truth, he's just giving them what they want. That's what's taking place. And we see that principle throughout Scripture. So let me ask you a question. Who hardened Pharaoh's heart? That's a common question. Who hardened his heart? So the Bible says that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. But guess what? There are two times at least where it says that Pharaoh hardened his own heart. Exodus 8, verses 15, and in verse 32. So God only hardens the hearts of those that have already hardened their own hearts. So three times, saying the principles throughout the New Testament, and some things can be hard to listen to, hard to hear, hard to accept. You know, three times in Romans 1, it says that God gave up. 
he gave them up, the wicked, to uncleanness, gave them up to vile affections, and gave them up to a reprobate mind. But if you go back and read Romans 1, every time before it says he gave them up, it says that man had turned his back on God. So, unless you've turned your back on God once and for all, you don't have to worry about that per se. So it says, to take one of them, it said, even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, they didn't want to retain him in their knowledge. Then it goes on to say, well, then God says, okay, well, then I'll give you over to a reprobate mind. You don't want to retain me in your knowledge? I'm just going to give you over then to that mind. That's what happens. And I want you, if you would, please, put something there in Mark 4 and turn over to 2 Thessalonians 2. In verses 10 to 12, and it says here in 2 Thessalonians 2, verses 10 to 12, we're kind of cutting in here. We'll start in verse 9. Even him whose coming is after the working of Satan, speaking of the Antichrist, with all power and signs and lying wonders, and with all deceivableness of unrighteousness in them that perish. And why? Because they receive not the love of the truth, that they might be saved. And then it says in verse 11, and for this cause... What cause? Because they didn't receive the love of the truth, then this is what God did. Then it says, because of that, God shall send them strong delusion. They didn't want to receive the truth, so what happens? Strong delusion that they should believe a lie, that they all might be damned who believe not the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. I'm saying that to me is a very solemn scripture especially coming in to these end times because that's an end time verse. So he's saying we had better love the truth and we had better practice righteousness. So I run into this all the time and not so much here, but at prison, guys, you know, they want to talk about the end times. They want to talk about the book of revelations. They read all these books that have nothing to do with living a holy life. I said, you can do all that stuff you want to, all the left behind books. You can have all your end time events totally lined up. And if you're not living a holy life, you will be deluded in the end because that's what God's word says. And that is where we have got to concentrate on these end times. We've got to love the truth and live the truth and live righteous lives so that we're not deceived. Isn't that what we just read there? I mean, that to me, it puts the fear of God in me every time I read that. Because those that don't, they will come under God's judgment. You will become an outsider. That's what happens. And so back to Mark 4, if you would. So, you know, when we look at that verse 2, that seeing they may see and not perceive, hearing they may hear and not understand, lest at any time they should be converted and their sins should be forgiven. I mean, that is a tremendous statement. He's saying, I want to do that to them so they can't be converted and forgiven. What's left after that? Nothing. I mean, that should put a fear in us. And now, now let's talk about this again. We talked about this last time. Do we see why Jesus repeatedly in this chapter warns us to listen and listen carefully with the intention of doing? And that's why, look, we're in chapter four. Look, he starts that whole parable. Hearken. I talked about this. It's a command. Listen up, he's saying. Listen to what I'm saying. And down in verse 9, and he said unto them, He that has ears to hear, you need to hear. Let him hear. It's a command again. And over in verse 23, If any man have ears to hear, let him hear. And he goes on in verse 24. We'll talk about this. He says, Take heed what you hear. 
take heed. It's critical. What you hear, how you hear. And so we've heard these verses a lot. James 1.22, be ye doers of the word and not hearers only. Because if you're a hearer and not a doer, he says, you deceive yourself. And that is easy to do, isn't it? That you come and hear a message and you think, man, that was just a really good message. I want to pass this on. And you're hearing messages coming out yours. If you're not doing them, that's not good. Listen to this, Ezekiel 33. These were concert-going Jews coming to hear the word like it's a concert. He says, they come unto thee as people come, and they sit before you as my people, and they hear thy words, but they will not do them. For with their mouth they show much love, but their heart goes after their covetousness. And lo, thou art unto them as a very lovely song of one that has a pleasant voice. It's like we went and heard a symphony the other night. Oh, it sounded so nice. He said, that's what you're like. You like to come and hear that and go away and you forget it. Thou art unto them as a very lovely song of one that has a pleasant voice and can play well on an instrument. For they hear thy words, but they do them not. And when this comes to pass, and he says, lo, it will come, then they shall know that a prophet has been among them. Got to listen and do. Isn't that what he's saying there? Can't just want to come and hear it. Just, oh, man, that was a great word we heard. We've got to have the intention of doing it. And so that point, Jesus either wants to increase our understanding or leave the heart empty, is picked up again in chapter 4 after he gives the explanation of the sower in verses 21 to 25. And so look in verses 21 to 23. He said to them, is a candle brought to be put under a bushel or under a bed and not to be set on a candlestick for there's nothing hid which shall not be manifested neither was anything kept secret but that it should come abroad and here again if any man have ears to hear let him hear and what's he saying he's saying look you don't bring a light into a room to cover it up he's saying that doesn't make any sense you don't bring a light in a room and then put a basket on top of it or stick it under the bed have your bed catch on fire he's like you don't do that so he's saying there's no purpose to having a light, having a lamp, bringing it in a room if you're just going to cover it up. And what's his point in all of that? Why is he saying that? He's saying God did not send the Lord Jesus Christ into the world to just cover up his teaching, his death, the truth. Didn't bring him in here to be hidden is his point. And Jesus said, why? He said, I will be revealed in my time, everything that's going on, so that everyone can clearly see. That's John 3. So he came to bring the light, but not all are basking in the light of the gospel. So, like I said, everyone knows John 3.16, but how many know John 3.19-21? Listen to what he says there. He says, Jesus says, This is the condemnation, that light has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For everyone that does evil hates the light. Neither comes the light, lest his deeds should be reproved. But he that does truth comes to the light, that his deeds may be manifest, that they are wrought in God. He's saying, I brought this light for everyone to bask in, to find salvation in. That is the purpose of it. But he's saying, some are running away from it. <laughs> like Ray Comfort used to say, you know, that's what cockroaches do. 
Sinners are like cockroaches. You throw the light on in the kitchen and they're all gone. They're in your cabinets. They're back under your baseboard. You don't see them anymore. And that's what Jesus is saying. When that light's turned on, they hate the light. They don't want to come to the light. So that's what we're talking about here, right? But he's saying they that want truth, the insiders, he says, oh, they'll come in the light and they'll bask in the light. And he goes on to say in 24 and 25, take heed what you hear. He's saying, with what measure you meet, it will be measured to you. And unto you that hear shall more be given. For he that has to him shall be given. And he that has not from him shall be taken even that which he says. But he's saying the ones that do come and they bask in that light and they're receiving that light and enjoying that light. He's saying they are going to be given more light. And so it is so critical. That's what he's telling us. It is so critical how we hear. We've got to be good ground hearers, hearing, receiving, and bearing fruit. That is the picture of a faithful life that he's given here, right? And to the ones like that, he's saying, you'll get more. Wow. What a promise. That's what he's saying. You'll get more. And that's what I want personally, and I'm sure... All of us can say that. Want more revelation and truth and the knowledge of God and his will for our lives. But he goes on to say, if you don't use what God's given you, he's saying even that which you think you have is going to be taken away. It's a warning, isn't it? And that's the same warning we got in 2 Thessalonians 2. That's basically what he's saying. Because they received not the love of the truth, God took it away from them and instead gave them a strong delusion that they would believe a lie. So what we have to do, I'm saying, we have to have hearts to hear and pray for the grace to live it. We do. <laughs> I can't stand on this pulpit and scream, but I'd like to. And Jesus gives us that admonition right there. Take heed how you hear. Verse 24, take heed, he says, how you hear. Pay attention is what that word's saying. Don't take it lightly or nonchalantly. I'm not just talking about while I'm standing here preaching. I'm talking whenever you're reading the word, hearing the word in any form, take heed how you hear. Because I like the way a person said this. We are like a prisoner locked in a cell whose only one chance of escape depends on hearing and solving a riddle. We've got to hear that thing right and give our attention to it and get our understanding out of it. That's our only chance of escape. Isn't that what the Word of God is for us? Amen. It's that essential to hear it and to live it so we can keep it and be given more. Do you hear that? I mean, that is critical for how it is. Pay attention to what you're hearing. It's like Jesus is pleading with us here. And he goes on at the end here, verses 26 through 32, he gives two more parables about planting seed in verses 26 to 29. And he said, so is the kingdom of God. It's as if a man should cast seed into the ground and should sleep and rise night and day and the seed should spring and grow up. He knoweth not how. For the earth bringeth forth fruit of herself, first the blade, then the ear, and after that the full corn in the ear. But when the fruit is brought forth immediately, he putteth in the sickle because the harvest is come. And so why is he giving this? It gets back to why I spent all that time on the beginning about this was their expectation of the kingdom. And he's saying, look, the kingdom of heaven is not like what you guys thought it would be like. He's answering the question that they would have been asking. You've announced that the kingdom of God is here, but where is it? I don't see any results. This is not what we were looking for. And he's saying the seed 
The word is what establishes the kingdom. So it may appear like it is doing nothing at all. But what he's promising is that if it is faithfully sown in the hearts of men, it will produce a crop. He's telling us that. So look, my yard, they put, I keep getting back to my yard. It's actually looking pretty good. But for 10 days, he's saying they plant that seed and it looked like nothing happened. And the guy's going to bed, getting up. That's what I do. I get up and go to bed, look at it. Nothing, just wet dirt for 10 days or more. And I mean, literally, I come out one day and I'm like, wow, it's like overnight that stuff's that big and keeps growing. And that's what he's saying. Now, he's not giving us a little thing here on how to grow grass or wheat. That's not what this is all about. But he's saying, hey, in the seed in the kingdom of God, it may appear like it's doing nothing. But something will happen. And here, we are all responsible, are we not, to scatter the seed. But can we really do more than that? Can we? We can water the seed in prayer. But other than scattering that seed and watering it in prayer, what can we do? Well, what does it say about this guy here? What does it say? Verse 27, he should sleep and rise night and day and the seed should spring and grow. But what does it say at the end? He doesn't know how. How's that happen? I don't know. I don't know what goes on in that dirt. As soon as you try to find out, you just lost your results. But what did Paul say? Paul said, I planted and Apollos watered, but what else had to happen for anything to happen? He says, for that thing to come up, for that Christian to be born again, God had to give the increase. He's got to give the increase. And listen, only he can give the increase. It's not a matter of our sweat. And so a lot of times we like to think we can save our children. By all the things we say, all the things we do and all that, we can't. And we can put the seed in them. We're supposed to do that, aren't we? It's all through Deuteronomy right on into the New Testament. We're supposed to... Raise them in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Speak the word to them. Do devotions with them. Pray with them. Teach them about the Lord. Talk to them about the Lord as you walk down the way, as you're driving your car, and so on and so forth. But listen, and we can also pray for them, can't we? But ultimately, we have to just leave them in the Lord's hands, don't we? Because what does the Bible say? Salvation is of the Lord. Now, what's he telling us here, though, in this parable? Jesus is saying, if we do our part, if we sow seed, pray, whether it's co-workers, family members, friends, neighbors, he's saying, like that guy, we've sown this seed, and one day we'll wake up surprised. He's made a comment to this person. You shared a verse with this person. I think Paul talked, was it Sunday, about he'd shared with somebody, and years later the guy gets saved. I had something like that happen going out on Bardstown Road. Shared the word with the guy. We sat there and talked and all that. I didn't see that guy. I see him again. It was like two years later on Bard's Tower. He said, man, I remember you. He said, after we talked that night, I went started going to church. I got saved, and he's been going to church ever since. Well, I'm saying it's, that's the way it works. You put that seed in there. Jesus is saying there will be a harvest one day. You don't know how. <laughs> how many times have we heard this verse? So shall my word be that goeth forth out of my mouth. It shall not return unto me void, but it shall accomplish that which I please, and it shall prosper in the thing whereunto I sent it. So the work of God, how all that works, when you put that seed in a heart, it's a mystery to us, right? 
It can be doing a work a lot of times. I'm saying, when I watch Billy Graham on TV, you wouldn't have known a thing happened to me. I was just as obnoxious and raunchy on the outside as it, but it was doing a work in my heart. And one day it came forth. God used that. Right? It's the mystery of John 3.8. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear the sound of it, but you can't tell from where it came and where it goes. That's the way it works. So all we can do is plant that word and watch it grow. Something's happening. That's how Jesus is telling us. This is how the Word of God works in our hearts. It received, and a lot of times it's received even with a new Christian, and you may think, man, they don't look like they're growing much. But something's happening underneath it, right? All of a sudden, boom, you start seeing results from the Word. And you even have that in your own life. You keep going over things, and eventually you start noticing that. It's finding root in my heart, becoming part of me. That's the way it works. And I had somebody tell me that they'd heard a message preached 12 months ago. But it was in their heart, and they got in a situation where it came alive for them, right? So the word sown in the heart is what bore fruit 12 months later. And when that happened, they got so excited, they're sharing it with others. And that's how God's word spreads. That's how his kingdom grows. <laughs> All through the word. And look here, we'll look at this last parable, verses 30 to 32. The parable of the mustard seed. And he said, Whereunto shall we liken the kingdom of God, or with what comparison shall we compare it? It is like a grain of mustard seed, which, when it is sown in the earth, is less than all the seeds that be in the earth. And when it is sown, it grows up and becomes greater than all herbs, and shoots out great branches, so that the fowls of the air may lodge under the shadow of it. And so what's he telling us here? He's saying no matter how insignificant the kingdom appears at times, right? The disciples then and us now, sometimes it appears like it's nothing insignificant, a mustard seed. But we need to know that in the end, it will be the greatest kingdom ever. <laughs> the greatest kingdom ever. So this parable isn't about growth. It's about contrast. It's comparing the beginning of the kingdom to the end of the kingdom because he's saying the beginning of that kingdom is like a microscopic seed. That's how big that mustard seed is, barely visible. But do you know, you put that thing in the ground and within a season, it's already six to 12 feet high with branches sturdy enough that the birds can be in it, right? And so the Jews were expecting it to be just the opposite. They weren't expecting this unrecognizable seed that seems to be doing anything, right? They wanted the kingdom of God to come in fire in this glorious bang. But Jesus says that is it. He says, I work the opposite of what men would expect. Because the kingdom starts off with a word, imperceptible. But in the end, he's saying, that's what he's telling us here. It'll be a glorious and triumphant kingdom. And he says, so what's the big deal about that? What's the purpose? Well, here again, if you were in Mark's living in that day, and he's writing to the Romans, those people at Rome were being oppressed at the time. You know, Christianity at that time was not a great, glorious, popular religion. It was being stamped out or being tried to be stamped out. You know where the Christians were meeting then? I've been to these places. The catacombs. That's where church was. It wasn't like this. Oh, no, they're meeting underground, being oppressed. The mustard seed didn't look like it would have survived Christianity the first few centuries. 
It's a small, despised, insignificant group of people. And what's this parable going to do of the Lord Jesus Christ? See, Mark, he only picked certain ones. Look what it says there. Verse 33, with many parables spake he the word unto them as they were able to hear it. With such parables. He's only given us a few of them. I think he's only got four in his whole gospel. So why is he picking that one out? He's going to encourage those people. It would have given them hope. Hey, it seems like we're nothing. We're going to get stamped out. But the Lord Jesus Christ said that one day this thing's going to blossom into the greatest plant. Giving them encourage. Then I'm saying, what about for us? If you watch CNN or Fox News too much, you're going to be overtaken with the idea that Christianity is down to a mustard seed. And we're getting close, I think, in some ways. So you can be fearful. You can live in fear that this country and the world are controlling your destiny and all is lost. Whatever, if you're not careful. Because Europe is in darkness right now, as far as Christianity is concerned. Churches closed, mosques opening everywhere. And the same is starting to happen here. I just heard a statistic that 6 to 7% of America are what would be considered true evangelical Bible-believing Christians. That is a really small percentage, 6 to 7%. And we think it's more than that because we hang around each other. It's like 100% for us, right? But it is not that big in the country. And we can start thinking, hey, you know, and it starts affecting how you believe. All that pressure starts coming in. Hey, you know, there's hardly any of us anymore. You sure this, you know, and all that comes in, that pressure. 2 Thessalonians 2, Paul says, Let no man deceive you by any means, for that day, the day of the Lord, it shall not come, except there come a falling away first. And it's happening. It really is. You want to be a conservative, Bible-believing Christian? You're going to be mocked. You're going to be abnormal. And it's going to get worse before it gets better. 2 Timothy 3.1 says, This know also, Paul wrote, Know this, that in the last days perilous times shall come. But this parable is giving us hope, isn't it? It's saying that, hey, even though we may become insignificant, and I think we are already not even going to become, we're really insignificant, God's word will prevail, will it not? And his kingdom will come. But we had better not walk by sight. Because Jesus also in Matthew said that because iniquity will abound, and it's beginning to abound more and more in unbelievable amounts, right? He says the love of many will wax cold because iniquity will abound. And that wax cold is what you do when you've got hot soup on a spoon. You blow on it and it slowly cools down. That's what it means to wax cold. Starting off hot, everybody seems like you're in the big crowd. Even next thing you know, it's like a really small crowd. And you just iniquities abounding everywhere, and just slowly your love waxes cold. Love for the Lord, love for others. That's what's going to happen. But hey, this is telling us we don't have to be discouraged about that. And I'm saying, as Paul would say, I speak better things of us. Right? So we can give heed, can't we, to command of Jesus to be careful hearers. We can be careful hearers and give our life of faith, walk of faith to see the manifestation of the kingdom of God. A great tree, he says here, with many branches and many nations will be in it. So in conclusion, the question is then, and looking at all these with the parables of the seed and how we hear, isn't that the main emphasis we've been talking about? 
How do we listen to God's word? The question is, are you an insider? Am I an insider? One that hears the word and wants to know more. So we seek the Lord in prayer, sometimes even fasting. Are we hearing with honest, as it said in the parable, honest and good hearts and bearing fruit so that God can bless us with what? More revelation, more truth. Or does the impact of the word only last a moment? Doesn't even last past walking out the door. So we saw here in this last parable, the kingdom of heaven, it is going to be greatly populated. Revelation says, behold, I beheld and lo, a great multitude which no man could number of all nations and kindreds and people and tongues stood before the throne and before the Lamb. And who are going to be the ones in that multitude? The ones that are the topic of this chapter, I believe, the insiders. The ones who have ears to hear and obey what they hear. Because Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice and they follow me. Sheep hear my voice. I know them, and they follow me, meaning they'll obey him. So who are those? Who are the ones that are going to make it? The ones that hear his word, that follow him, that do his will, they are his family. If you just look up at the end of chapter 3, we'll just look at that again. And we'll close with this. And he looked around about on them, the ones that sat around him and are listening to him, and he said, Behold... My mother and brethren, for whosoever shall do the will of God, the same is my brother and my sister and my mother. And let's put our name in that whosoever. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you once again for the words you've given us. I just ask, Lord, that you'll give us all hearing ears and hearing hearts to hear your warning that we give heed to what we hear and how we hear. And I just ask, Lord, that you'll not only give us hearing ears, but hearts to obey what we hear. That we can stand before you on that day, Lord, not given over to the strong delusion, but that we can hear you say, well done, thou good and faithful servant. And I thank you that you'll do that for all of us here. And that's my prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.